Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. I'm your co-host, Drew Youngdike. Along with me is my co-host, Aaron Kindle, also of the National Wildlife Federation. And we have a special repeat guest today, Shane Mahoney of Conservation Visions is joining us, and we're pretty excited for that. Now, if you listen to our podcast with Shane uh, from last summer, he talked about what the Wild Harvest Initiative is. But in case you missed that, Shane, would you mind reminding folks what is the Wild Harvest Initiative, Conservation Visions, and a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. Um, well, to take them in the order you've raised them, Drew, uh, the Wild Harvest Initiative is the really the first attempt ever in North America, Canada and the United States specifically, to quantify the wild recreational harvest of mammals and birds and fish um, taken by anglers and hunters. Uh, and to bring that information into focus in terms of its economic value, its food security value, uh, the importance of natural habitats and so on for producing this wild food, and uh, feeding into, of course, the major trends in society towards self-reliance, healthy living, and so on and so forth. So um, it's a big effort with about 35 major partners, of which the National Wildlife Federation is one. Um, and we're well on our way to compiling and circulating this information. Conservation Visions, which is the new entity I've led for the last five to six years after leaving my research positions and instituted government, et cetera, um, is, a, is a small but globally connected entity that works with a lot of governments, state, provincial, and international, as well as with international conventions, uh, such as Convention on Biodiversity, et cetera, to sort of frame up policies and to work on policies that can be influenced by North American experiences and to talk to North American audiences about global trends that can influence North American sustainable use activities, which is what I focus on, though not exclusively. Um, and for me personally, um, I have been, you know, obviously an animal lover, wildlife enthusiast, uh, wildlife researcher for a very long time. Uh, and probably became uh, most heavily involved in the public domain through discussions of the North American model and its importance for the recovery, rescue, and sustenance of wildlife populations in Canada and the United States, largely, but not exclusively, uh, supported by the recreational hunting and angling communities. That's a great answer, Shane. And, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on again is because we really feel like you're one of the leading voices on the subject we want to talk about today. And it's really the intersection between hunters and anglers and climate change. Um, you know, we all understand, uh, at least most of us, uh, that climate change is really undeniable at this point. You know, the, the, the decade from 2010 to 2019 was the hottest decade ever rec recorded. Uh, Arctic ice has been the lowest levels on record. You know, here in Colorado, we're seeing an average of something like two to three weeks earlier for snowmelt, two to three weeks later for the first snows that persist. Um, 
there's a lot of things in our minds that are really overwhelming. Um, and so, you know, you being a, an international wildlife expert and seeing this across the world and also living up there pretty far north and, and having a having a background that's very intimate with the fishing community and reliant on sea ice and other things, we thought you would be a perfect person to help us talk about this and, and think about this. Um, so I guess one of the first things I want to ask you is, is just talk a little bit about how you see climate change affecting you know, wild harvest opportunities. And I'll, and I'll say wild harvest, not meaning formally your, your initiative, but, you know, the opportunity to go out there, hunt and fish and gather and, and really get substance, sustenance for your family and, and, and bring in wild foods. Can you talk about that a little, please? Sure. Well, you know, putting it in context, obviously the changing world temperatures and changing climates that we're seeing today even though they are happening at a rapid pace compared with, you know, what has happened across geological time and even recorded time, historical time, uh, they are taking place at a pace where for the average person each day or within a year, you know, they're not going to see necessarily a large fundamental shift. But one of the things that the outdoor community generally, including hunters and anglers, but not exclusively hunters and anglers, one of the things that um, they witness, of course, is firsthand what is happening out there in the natural world. And so it is vitally important that they think about these kinds of issues, I believe. And the other aspect of this community is that they have tended to be very concerned about the future for their children, for their grandchildren. In other words, for others, as Teddy Roosevelt said, for generations yet unborn. Um, and what kind of a world will they inherit? And so the changes that we are seeing on landscapes, some of which you've referenced, you know, they are playing out and they will continue to play out and their cumulative effects will grow over time if the patterns we see today continue. So I think in that sense, ultimately, the way we harvest species recreationally is what we're talking about here, hunters and anglers, for example, but also the way we commercially harvest in, you know, worldwide fisheries and things of this nature and worldwide forestry practices, they will be affected by the changing habitats, by the changing growth phases, by the changing fire regimes, by the many, by the changing sea temperatures, water temperatures and so on. You know, these, these effects will become manifest over time. And when I say that people may not see the effect in a single year, that doesn't mean people in their lifetime will not see effect. Um, to give you an example, the Inuit peoples of northern Canada and Alaska have been in the region for at least 6,000 years. Their languages uh, contain, of course, intimate references to many, many aspects of the natural world, wildlife, plants, kinds of snow, kinds of ice, you know, weather, etc. But it's very interesting to see now the interjection of English words, words like robin, you know, for the small bird that we, we, we see returning each spring, robin redbreasts. Uh, there is no word, of course, in the language of, of the Inuit peoples for robin. So in 6,000 years, they've never seen that animal. Now, the only way they can identify it is by using the English term. So when I say that people won't necessarily see change instantly, you know, one year to the next necessarily, that doesn't mean that over a lifetime of harvesting of 20 or 30 years, people haven't seen change already. And certainly most people have seen change. The question in people's minds is really what's driving it more than the fact that there has been change, because I think most people accept there's certainly been changes in their lifetime. Well, do you, do you want to talk about that at all, Shane? I mean, I think we uh, there's a pretty good scientific body that would tell us that most of the uh, issues we're seeing are, are human-caused. Um, I don't know how much you want to dive into that. Um, I've got some more questions, of course, but <laughs> if yeah. you want to talk about that, we'll give you a chance here. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is the fundamental question, I think, Aaron. I mean, if you take any group of people, we can talk about, uh, say, hunters, or we can talk about anglers, or we can talk about outdoor enthusiasts, or we can talk about 
I don't know, people who don't spend very much time in the outdoors at all. We can carve up society into any number of categories. And I think we need to be uh, objective about this. In any one of those societal categories, most lawyers, most politicians, most doctors, whatever it may be, uh, there will be a wide range of opinion on this issue of climate change. Some people will say the climate's always been changing. And so what we're seeing today is just a, a normal facet of that. Some people will say, uh, I've never seen so much change in, in, as I have seen in the last few years because you know, they live in a place where they can look at mountains and they see the glaciers are disappearing or you know, they have some metric that they can easily measure. And then you have uh, some people who will be indifferent. And I don't think that we should necessarily expect that the hunting and angling communities will be so different from those other categories and that there will be a range of opinion that will be expressed by people about around this phenomenon of climate change. Furthermore, everybody who says that climate's always been changing are correct. And of course, we know that through geological time. Uh, the climate has always changed and some of the changes have been very dramatic. The ice ages were not a small blip. You know, they were pretty significant. The island I live on had a sheet of ice a mile thick above it at the peak of the glaciations uh, not terribly long ago, 8,000 years or so ago. So, you know, uh, people are also correct in the saying that there can be dramatic changes. However, when you look at the rate of change of things such as global temperatures or the pattern of warmest years and so on, which you introduced in your original uh, introduction here, then clearly we are seeing a different pattern. The hunting community is in a unique position to think about this problem. And I think we have a tremendous opportunity to contribute to this discussion. The average person who does not spend time in the outdoors does not see the same kinds of things that the hunter and angler witness. Secondly, the hunter in particular, I think, is searching the landscape in an ecological way. They're noticing habitats, they're noticing temperatures, they're noticing snowfall, they're noticing leaf drop, they're noticing the return of other species to, to, to a landscape. They know that animals move between habitats uh, to secure the food and forage and escape predators that they need. In other words, the hunting community is vitally informed around the dynamics in nature that climate change, the regular pattern of climate change, and the exacerbated pattern of climate change that we see today is operating against. From my perspective, I see the hunting community, even with its diversity of views, I see the hunting community as being a vital voice to contribute to this discussion. And that doesn't mean always agreeing with the latest science, piece of scientific evidence that comes out either, Aaron. I mean, sometimes science can be off, right? It can make false projections or exaggerations, not intentionally necessarily, but it can happen. Certain level of skepticism, I think, as any scientist would argue, a certain level of skepticism can be healthy. Uh, it is when, uh, you know, someone wishes to dismiss all evidence because of, I don't know, an ideological perspective. I think that's where we tend to have complications in making progress on major problems. And remember, let's assume for the moment, for all your listeners, that climate change is real. And let's assume that it's, you know, it's happening at a faster and faster pace. And let's assume that a contributing factor is human activity. You know, trains, planes, cars, you know, you know the, the, all the things that we are doing on the, but let's say we're contributing to some extent. Well, that means if it's true, and I think there's a lot of evidence for that, that we have a tremendous capacity to also influence that rate of change. And in many cases, we can do that without massive disruptions of our society. In some cases, we may need major disruptions, but in other cases not. Can we produce more fuel efficient cars and trucks? Of course we can. Can we switch to alternative technologies and still get great performance out of those vehicles? Of course we can. We're able to put people in space. My goodness, we can, we can, you know, we can make more efficient engines if we wish to do so, and so on. So, I think that the uh, while there is a debate in the hunting community around climate change, there's a debate in every community, the political community, the legal community, everywhere. There's a debate. 
what I would try to emphasize is the informed nature of the hunting community around what's happening out there in the natural world and to try to encourage as much discussion within that community as possible because that hunting community, we have something truly to offer in this regard. We are the citizen scientists in a way to be able to contribute to what's happening on the landscape as a result of changing uh, air temperatures and sea temperatures. And I, I would totally agree, Shane. And I, I guess that that's a good segue to one of the things I wanted you to speak about too. And, and then we'll give Drew a chance to ask you some questions as well. But can you, can you offer any insight about why you believe hunters and anglers are, are reluctant to speak about this? And maybe specifically, the, the, there's not very many sporting-focused organizations who have an official climate platform. Um, there, there's a handful, but really compared to the, the, the wide scope and breadth of, of organizations, there's not that many that really come out and say anything about it. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that might be? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. And, um, you know, one doesn't have to be in any sense um, negative or conspiratorial to think about it, right? Um, I mean, uh, for example, uh, again, because of the reality of the hunting experience, hunters are familiar with the changeability of weather, more so than most people. We know that if we climb a mountain, for example, uh, when we leave the valley and go to six, eight, ten thousand feet, uh, when we're up there, there's a massive difference between what happens up there in terms of winds and snowfall and you know, pr precipitation patterns and so on than what happens in a valley. So I actually think that part of the reason why hunters can sometimes appear blasé about this issue and say, oh, yeah, you know, the climate's always changing, is because, in fact, in their own life experience, more than the average person, they have actually encountered the changeability and the variability of weather on the land. Uh, so I think that's one uh, possible contributing reason to this. Uh, secondly, uh, I know lots of hunters who believe that, you know, climate change is a real phenomenon. Uh, I know hunters who say they don't think it is, and they believe, again, that climate's always changing and all we're seeing is just a, you know, part of a regular, a regular process. Um, so I don't think it would be uh, factual to say that, you know, all hunters uh, steer away from this debate. Uh, I would say there's a diversity of view, and I would say that there are some hunters who certainly, you know, don't don't uh, don't warm up too much to the idea that uh, that climate is changing. And certainly, I think um, there is a a uh, a component of the hunting community that probably really shies away from, you know, um, some of the statistics and some of the actions that people are asking us to take as a result of what we believe is happening with climate change. I mean, I think there they start to run up against the idea of imposition on freedoms, of changing society in ways that they don't really want to happen. I understand these things. I don't see them as being, um, you know, a peculiar and particular virus, you know, affecting one segment of society more than another. Um, I do think that, uh, again, the hunting community may um, simply kind of wish to get on with things. In other words, we, we, we are living the lives we have. Many hunters have a great focus on their time in the outdoors. And as long as they can engage in that outdoor activity, uh, to some extent, they feel that life is pretty good. This is a really important component of who they are and what they do. And, you know, I know some hunters, and I would say I'm probably one of them, who tend to remember the hardest, dirtiest weather trips uh, that I took as being among the most enjoyable. Maybe not when I was going through them, but after I came back and, and thought about them. So I, I do think, Aaron, that there are some, you know, kind of underlying uh, qualities within the hunting community that may manifest themselves in ways that a climate change scientist might say, well, that's, that, that's, a, that's a kind of an indifferent or blasé way to react to this. Um, this is doing nothing to, to, uh, you know, to sort of uh, negate uh, the challenges that climate change is posing around the world. And if anything, as I said earlier in my comments to you, I think this is, these are the reasons why the hunting community 
should openly express its views around this issue and try to contribute. Because if we were able to take the 12 to 14 million hunters in Canada and the United States and have them being interviewed as you're speaking to me today on your podcast, and you were able to assemble from each of them, you know, the stories of what they have seen as experienced hunters over time, I'll bet you the vast majority would not only tell us some extraordinary things, but would add to the information that's available on climate change in a very fundamental and substantive way. And in fact, whether scientists, there are scientists opposed to climate change thinking, there are scientists in favor of climate change thinking, it's not just the general public, even scientists disagree to some extent on this. Um, but every one of those scientists, I think, would welcome that wealth of information that the communities we're trying to speak to today could provide to this debate. Thanks, Shane. And I mean, you're touching on so many of the important factors that, that we all need to be thinking about and, and your insight into the sporting community and how they look at this is really important. Just, you know, as you talk to so many of them across the country, and I guess I would just say too, you know, National Wildlife Federation, we obviously take climate change very seriously. We have 52 state and territorial affiliates with a lot of anecdotal evidence from across the country, um, from flooding to different migration to seasonal fishing closures. You know, for instance, in Montana, they're, they're considering closing the, uh, the Madison River for two months every summer permanently now uh, to fishing in the middle of the day. Really? Um, you know, we're wow. seeing a lot of different anecdotal changes. Um, so we take it very seriously and we're working with a lot of our affiliates, including some of our more sporting, you know, hook and bullet facing affiliates. Uh, there's a few that are really seeing the effects and are taking this very seriously. So we commend your efforts to speak about it with your platform and, and we'll continue to do the same. And, and I appreciate your thinking around, you know, getting some of those uh, on the ground voices. I, I tell people all the time and it's hard to convey to folks who, who haven't done it, but there's nothing like repeatedly getting up in the dark, walking into a landscape year after year to try and observe the changes that happen there. A, you don't usually walk into a landscape trying not to be seen or heard, which allows you to, to, yeah. to see things and, and hear things that you wouldn't otherwise. And then B, because you do that and you observe so acutely, you notice things that you wouldn't otherwise notice. And I, and I think like you said, the hunters and anglers have a specific, very descriptive piece of knowledge that, that could really help in this um, to tell those stories and to, and to really precipitate change. So I, I really agree with you, Aaron. And I, I just say one other comment uh, in this line of discussion between yourself and, and I, um, let's leave aside the causal element for the moment, like, like what's causing the changes that we see, because, um, this tends to be, you know, where a lot of the difference of opinion kinds of refracts. But looking at this from another perspective, so I was born, raised, I live on the island of Newfoundland. It's a, not a very industrialized place, you know, um, and it's still, by any standard, it's a pretty wild place, and and most of the province is uninhabited. And um, so I look at things like. Um, when I was a boy and I would come in to my home in the evening, uh, I would be covered in moths. You know, I'd have, we, we call them millers in Newfoundland, millers, but they're moths, you know. We, and um, so you'd come in as a little boy and you'd have, you know, maybe 15 or 20 of these little insects on you fluttering and, you know, you'd brush them outdoors and they'd go on, whatever. And I can tell you now that you can come in through a door in rural Newfoundland, not in St. John's in the city, but in any place in Newfoundland, in a cabin anywhere, and you will hardly see any of these insects, these nighttime butterflies, so to speak. And uh, I don't know what's causing that arm. I don't know that anybody can tell me exactly what's causing it, specifically for my circumstance on the island of Newfoundland. But I can tell you that the most people I know don't even recognize that. They, they, they don't think about that. I think about it because my life has been embedded in nature. I've, I've, you know, like any hunter and angler, I've been out there and I see those changes. 
So if we could leave aside for the moment the more contested issue of what's causing these changes in our you know, world temperatures and so on and so forth, the amount of simply observational data about changes that the hunting and angling community can come forward with would, is simply an awesome opportunity. So, you know, as I said, I don't know what's causing the loss of all these pollinators and insects in Newfoundland. We, we have some ideas about this, but nobody really knows. And yet it's real. It's absolutely real. There is no contesting it. And um, I think being able to say that to people is important so that they notice other things that are changing around them in the natural world too. That, that's really interesting. And along with hunters and, and anglers and foragers being kind of that observational canary in the coal mine, if you will, um, about what's going on with, with wildlife on the landscape. Um, I, I like what you said about, let's leave aside the more contested um, discussion of what's causing it. When we get to how climate change is affecting wildlife, um, as I've heard you say, the, the wild others um, as, as well, yeah. what kind of things can we do or even policies can we support as an outdoors community that will help wildlife through those changes, whatever is causing them certain uh, mitigation practices or how, I guess what I'm asking is how can we su support policies and what can we do regardless of the cause to help wildlife survive through some of these changes that are coming? I think there's a range of things. Uh, just to cap off the last discussion, I first think the first thing is to provide our observational information to our own entities and organizations, whether one is a member of a, of a huge organization like the National Wildlife Federation that's actively engaged in this, or whether somebody is a member of another, you know, conservation or sustainable use oriented organization, or even, or if somebody's a part of a protectionist organization that's mostly concerned with national parks or spaces such as that. So I think the first thing is to, is to add our voices of knowledge to the equation. I think the second principle, I guess, that I would articulate is, by and large, the hunting and angling community, there are exceptions, but by and large, I think what we want is a world where we tread lightly. You know, most of us want a world where we enter that natural space with those wild others, and we come out of that wild space without having deteriorated that landscape, you know, tearing it up, disfiguring it, uh, depositing garbage, or, you know, what, whatever it might be. Because we, 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 we want the landscape to look like that when we go back there again. Um, so I think if you bring that principle to bear, then it opens up a whole range of opportunities of things of what we can hopefully influence. So all hunters want clean water. All hunters and anglers want clean water. They want clean air. They want resilient ecosystems. They want um, industries to be reasonable about the things that they do on landscapes. They want the general public to be reasonable about what they do on landscapes and to care for wildlife and to care for the landscapes at which they're on. So I think you can pick your poison or pick your, pick your pint. You know, however you look at it, you can you can you can decide that you're going to work with, you know, regulatory agencies in some way to provide encouragement to them to you know develop the right policies, the right guidelines, the right regulations to protect those natural systems. Um, you can work with uh, uh, an existing conservation organization to uh, to push them, you know, to do more in the areas that you're concerned about within the landscapes and the, the patterns that you see happening. Um, you can even, I think, uh, as a hunter and angler, and as anyone concerned for the environment, you can do a lot in your own neighborhood and your own communities by, by making people aware of what you know and about what things matter and what things should matter to people. And I also think we as a hunting and angling community, and this is part of the reason for the Wild Harvest Initiative, you know, we can help remind people that we are all still gathering from that natural world. It doesn't matter if you live in a, in a you know, a, a great condominium high rise in, in, in Manhattan or, or, or you live in Colorado or you live in Montana or Michigan or Newfoundland. Every human being is harvesting from the natural world to some, to some extent. 
and we rely on the natural patterns of nature to provide that food to us. Um, if we do not have the right habitats, we will not have elk, we will not have pronghorn, we will not have ducks, we will, we will not have the wildlife that we need. And that doesn't just mean one kind of habitat, of course, as any hunter knows, wildlife needs a variety of habitats in, in, in order to survive. So arguing for not just policies and regulations that are clear about, you know, how much pollution can be in the air or something of this nature, arguing for the, the conservation of landscapes as diverse places. And there's too little of that. There's too little of that in general, because most organizations will have an angle, you know, they'll have an emphasis, they'll have a focus and so on and so forth. But what we need is this diversity in nature that's out there interacting. And so I think, you know, again, I just see hunters and anglers as formidable allies in this entire discussion. Part of what's happening with climate change is we are, of course, pouring into the atmosphere compounds and molecules that are attracting and trapping heat and allowing the surface of the world to increase and also uh, the temperatures of water systems, both marine and, and freshwater. We know that I think most people will accept that is a component of what is happening. Well, we are also aware that another component of what is happening is how we are altering the landscapes on Earth removing the carbon sinks, such as massive forested areas, whether that's the boreal in the system where I live, or whether it's a tropical forest system in, in the equatorial belt or wherever it might be, or the coastal rainforest along the Pacific coast of the United States and Canada, whatever. We know we're doing two things. We're contributing through pollutants into the atmosphere. We're changing the structure of natural systems on the planet. In both those areas, there are an unlimited array of things that we are able to do. Every time there's a crisis in human culture, in facing humanity, we demonstrate how quickly we can change. You take COVID. So all of a sudden this virus, you know, comes out of a, a market presumably in China and affects the rest of the world. And suddenly governments in the United States, in Canada, in Germany, Italy, France, Botswana, South Africa, wherever you're looking, all of a sudden governments are able to enact policies and develop regulations and guidelines and financial in incentives and things of this nature that would normally have taken them years to talk about. And all of a sudden, because we have a crisis, we suddenly unlock this capacity in ourselves to be able to do things really quickly. And we will have a vaccine in record time for this, for this uh, viral disease. Watch, that's what's going to happen. Part of the problem with climate change, of course, it's not immediate enough. It takes time, as I mentioned in the conversations with Aaron, it takes time for people to see this happening. You know, I know fishermen, commercial fishermen in Newfoundland who dispelled the notion 20 years ago and said, ah, it's ridiculous. It's not happening. You know, that's only foolishness. There's some fellow on radio talking about that. You know, it's all foolishness. But they're not saying it now because for the first time in 500 years on the water, we got to bathe ourselves in, uh, in sunscreen in order not to be burnt to death. I mean, it, so we are, we, are, we are seeing the change over a long period of time, but climate change moves slowly and it takes a long time. Unlike COVID that can come into your habitat, your home, your community, your church, your organization like that. But when that happens, humanity is able to do absolutely extraordinary things. So let's take this climate change thing and say it's all happening as a natural pattern with a minor amount of influence from the human population. Because I think even most people would give you that to some little influence that we're having on this. Well, maybe that's enough for us to start with. Let's pull back that small amount of influence. Let's develop better vehicles, better cars, better fuels, better, better, better ways of extracting energy, uh, better ways of uh, treating our homes, uh, developing better food supply systems, and so on and so forth. Nothing says a city can't grow food. That's just what we got in our heads, that we got to have food only produced out in the farmland, so to speak. Hell, we, we're, we're raising buildings up into the light, into the atmosphere. Why can't we grow food on them? Of course we can grow food. I... 
sorry for going off on a bit of a, a, a analogy here, but there's just so much that we are able to do if we really tried to just sit down as reasonable human beings and say, look, for goodness sake, you know, the glaciers are disappearing. Um, you know, we're finding roads that the Vikings used centuries and centuries ago that are being exposed because ice is disappearing. Something new has happened. Let me tell you, people should just listen to their own families and ask themselves when they were around their kitchen table or their dining room table with their, we never had dining rooms in the family, we only had a kitchen, so that's where we ate. But, you know, you didn't hear your grandparents and your parents talk about how much the climate was, was changing. They, like, they didn't talk about that issue. Yet my culture and many, probably both of yours, were living in the outdoors every single day. They were witnessing the variability in weather, the storms, the northeasters, the snow, the unexpected squalls, you know, these kinds of things. Ice came a little bit early, whatever it might be. But now around the table, people are talking about this. Fishermen are referencing how they've never seen that before and they've never seen this before. And we've been on this island for 500 years, in one form or another, 500 years, and we have an incredibly strong oral tradition, just like indigenous peoples do. There is something different happening. And I think we only have to look at COVID to tell us if we really believe this was a problem and we really believe we could find help find a solution, and we should, like we are with COVID, because it's going to hurt our loved ones. It's going to, you know, cause death and illness and so on and so forth. Just think about what we could do. And the first thing that the people who are working on that problem would say, we need data. We need knowledgeable people to provide us with information. We need activism with regard to this. And so I say to the hunting community and the angling community and everybody in the outdoors community who loves nature, who loves wildlife, who wants to have those places for, for future generations, I say to them, get involved and contribute what you can. If you totally disagree with climate change, fine. Provide your observations over your lifetime that can contradict it even. But come forward and give the information because as somebody who has hunted for 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years or whatever, you and your dogs and you and your friends and you and your parents, and you and your grandparents, and you and your children, you have this unique possibility. And why wouldn't you give that to make a better world? I appreciated that. Let's we'll call it long-winded, Shane, but long-winded in a good way. It had a lot of passion in it, and I appreciated that a lot. Um, I guess I, I would point to NWF has uh, created a natural climate solutions platform um, where we outline a, a handful of different things that can be done, and they really focus on a few different key things. Um, you know, with, with resiliency, really it's both mitigation and resiliency. It's doing things to prevent the issues and then it's doing things that will make us better prepared for when things like megastorms hit or drought or so on. And they, and they talk, they touch on so many of the things that you mentioned, right? Um, restoring forests, um, really taking care of wetlands and, and wetted areas. Those are, those are a huge part of what mitigates storms. Um, protecting migration corridors. Uh, we have these areas that are so critical to wildlife and especially when they're stressed by climate, uh, those areas become even more critical. Uh, so taking care of those types of areas. So I would just encourage our listeners, if you're interested in, in more, just look up National Wildlife Federation uh, Natural Climate Solutions. You'll find it. You'll see our platform. And we have a, we have a document that lays out the different things we're, we're promoting. And obviously, we have to do that with our decision makers. Um, and so we've been pushing on a lot of our folks in Congress uh, to do these things. And, and we're starting to get there. Uh, obviously, right now is a tough time with, with some more immediate concerns. But I just wanted to make sure and mention that because um, I think, 
I think one of the things about climate too is it seems so much bigger than any of us and it seems a little bit hopeless at times. And I think the point you made there, Shane, was really important. Do something, tell some of the stories, give what you can. Um, that's, that's really important thing. And, uh, you know, get, have relationships with your decision makers. And, and just go talk to them and tell them what you observed. And you don't even have to necessarily be promoting anything. Um, you can just say, hey, I've observed these things. They're concerning to me as a, as a hunter, or an angler, or a citizen. And I want you to know about them. And, and come, come see them with me if you can. Um, I yeah. think a lot of the things now with people, as you've mentioned too, Shane, getting further and further away from nature, unfortunately, is, is also hurting us a little bit because so many other people don't observe those things like a lot of us are. Um, and so there's parts where you get people involved and then you do the policy things, but you, you want your decision makers to understand this stuff too. You do. I think, I think uh, just another takeoff and one of those comments, Aaron, you know, it's funny about how things can become controversial sometimes, you know, you can get two people going to a meeting and they don't intend to be controversial at all, but you know, one says something and then another says something and all of a sudden there's some sort of divisiveness going on. And yet deep down, most people will say that what they want really is a more inclusive process and a more progressive, you know, uh, kind of a process. And I think one of the things that can be helpful in, in discussing this issue of climate change, which as I said, can be controversial in many sectors, not just in the hunting and angling communities. The scientific community has some great debates over this. But one of the things I think can be helpful specifically with the hunter and angler community and the outdoors community more broadly, which National Wildlife Federation obviously represents, um, is to demonstrate how the things that many organizations are already doing um, how many of those things are actually working in the right direction with respect to climate change. So the efforts, for example, that uh, organizations are making to try to protect migration corridors and to understand better the migration corridors and why wildlife populations move as they do, you know, and the much emphasis recently on elk populations and so on. Um, the idea of working to preserve wetlands, which is a long-standing, you know, effort by by hunter and angler uh, organizations and the and the non-governmental organizations that have represented them and so on. I mean, there are a lot of things. The the disease research that the Wild Sheep Foundation, for example, is doing on the you know the transmission of pneumonias from domestic sheep to to wild sheep yeah. and so on and so forth. And so there, I think, part of what needs to be introduced to this discussion too is some uh, is some assurance to people in the communities of hunters and anglers that many of the things they have been trying to do are really worthwhile in the context of climate change. Yeah, and, and actually here in Michigan, we recently had a, uh, a dam break uh, near near Midland, and it, it was part the old infrastructure and, and improper maintenance, but it was also one of these storms that are becoming more frequent and putting more precipitation on the ground that some of these old dams aren't able to handle. But, but one of the things that happened, too, is the, the, the flood that ensued didn't get quite as high as expected partly because the Shiawassee National Wildlife Refuge right around Saginaw Bay there, which, you know, is a national wildlife refuge, was advocated for, as well as some of the wetlands that Ducks Unlimited has done a lot of work to preserve and, and protect, that absorbs some of that flood water. And, and to me, that as you were just talking about making sure hunters and anglers understand some of the things that we've been doing are working, that's one of the ones that jumped to mind as, yeah. that's helped with mitigate that you, you mentioned something earlier, too, about our adaptation to, to COVID, as well as, you know, where, where our meat comes from. And, and I noticed something, and maybe you've seen it, too, but there seems to be an increase, a renewed interest in obtaining wild food and wild harvest from the landscape as people have kind of shied away from grocery stores, as meat has been scarcer due to distribution on those shelves as well. And, and I've seen in some states, you know, during turkey season, licenses are up 30 to 50%. Uh, fishing licenses are up, you know, 50 to 70% in some areas. Um, it, it seems like we have a moment in time where there's an increased 
attention and interest by maybe people who haven't been as involved in wild harvest in that concept. And maybe they can be some of these new eyes on the ground that can start documenting some of what they see too. Uh, given all that, I know I've kind of covered a lot there, but given all that, if you had you know, a magic wand and you could say, okay, here's what I'd like to see happen, given this mix of everything going on that we've been talking about, what would you like to see happen? Well, I'd hope that people would, would walk away from this, um, from this crisis with, with, um, with, with a reinforced sense that we're all living on the same planet. When I say we all, we can narrow that first to talk about all human beings of all cultures, of all races. COVID doesn't seem to care about your skin color or your religious affiliation or what language you speak. But more broadly than that for me, because I, I don't separate humans from the natural world I, uh, at all. I mean, it's, it's a nonsensical thing to me. Um, I believe for us to realize that all of us, all of nature together, um, is uh, are part of this world. And what we should be taking away from COVID, I think, is to recognize that because we are so close to the rest of nature, we of course are susceptible to the parasites and the viruses and things that various animals harbor. If we were so separate, of course, we probably wouldn't be susceptible, but we are susceptible because we are so close. And that what we need out of this kind of experience is a renewed commitment to healthy systems, to resilient systems, um, to handling and caring for and uh, wild foods of all kinds, but especially wild animals, obviously, in ways that think about human health. Um, and that can encourage us uh, to think about what can we do in our own lives to make our own food systems more natural, more healthy. Canada and the United States, as many other parts of the world, still have an enormous capacity to generate wild foods for people, not just uh, birds and mammals and fish, but but also wild berries and fruits and mushrooms and rices and you know fungi, mushrooms and all kinds of uh, maple syrups, all kinds of products. I would like to see a world where that was given some level of priority. I'd like to see a world where the idea of wild food and healthy ecosystems upon which that wild food is dependent, the species are dependent upon, is given a fair consideration in the competitive interests for land in our two countries, for example. I think when somebody decides that they will harvest a forest, we need timber harvesting. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have some sort of timber harvesting. But if we're going to do it, if we're going to explore for natural gas, if we're going to explore for oil, if we're going to develop agricultural sites, whatever it might be, that part of what we weigh off in that decision is the capacity of that natural land to produce clean water, to prevent uh, a worse dam break situation than might otherwise have occurred, to give people the option of being able to harvest from the wild. Indeed, give wildlife managers the opportunity to really manage landscapes for wild food production. Now, there would be an idea that could transform the ecology of North America and indeed the world. Turn over all of our scientific expertise and all of our citizen science expertise from the hunting and angling community we've been emphasizing in this podcast today. Turn all that over to the idea of looking out those natural landscapes as food production, food security reservoirs and see what the economics really are. See what the final equation is. So when people argue, as they did with me for many years in my government job, oh, we have to have this because of this development, because of this number of jobs, I mean, you know, it's this amount of money involved and so on, there are always trade-offs. And what's happening is that people, and industry, by the way, is going to learn this now. You're going to see a collapse of a lot of these production chains back to much more local, regional kind of production systems, because there's too many steps in those long chains for problems to emerge, as we've learned with COVID. You're going to see a retraction of that. 
And the extreme part of that is going to be people deciding to harvest for themselves, whether it's wild fish or berries, fruits, whatever it might be, firewood, shed antlers for artistic things, all those kinds of things. Look, I can look at a landscape and show you how to grow moose, how to grow wild hares and rabbits, how to grow wild birds. We know enough after 100 years, after certainly the 80 or 90 years since Leopold's game management text broke on the scene. We can manage those landscapes. What would I like as a magic wand? I would like for people to see that natural world as just what it is, our savior, our only place, our only chance, and to treat it in the right way, not just by not destroying it, but to learn as human beings did in the 60,000 years since we came out of Africa of how to manage it, how to work with it, how to, how to use fire productively to increase wildlife production, you know, how to protect spawning areas and, and sacred places that wildlife need to thrive. Maybe, maybe if we don't get tied up in divisive arguments over COVID of who was right, and who was wrong, and who did it quickly enough and who didn't do it quickly enough, maybe we could focus on the fact that the natural world tells us something. Every now and then it tells us something. And I think COVID is telling us something. And now some people will say, well, the solution to that is to ban all wildlife trade or to ban all wildlife use. I say, no, the answer here is to figure out the lessons in this experience today to make us better stewards, better animals on this planet than we sometimes are. And we have the capacity to do that. That's an excellent answer, Shane. Either way, I'll uh, have to follow it. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 boy, you summarized well so many things. I think all of us who care about wildlife and wild places so much uh, would really like to see. And I guess one other thing that occurred to me when you said that is I think all of that translates into treating one another better too. Uh, just, a, just a better respect for life on earth and for humanity and for wildlife, I think all of it is naturally connected to all of those things. Um, and so I appreciate that. And I like thinking about the different fingers that that could take with, with helping people with some of these climate change solutions we've talked about. I think all of those become more possible if we can change some of our thinking along the lines of what you just mentioned. So I really appreciate the, the, the context and the insight you provided there. Well, thank you very much, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, I, I've I've had the opportunity to travel the world, um, and you'll be able to relate to this. The National Wildlife Federation is a big umbrella organization. It has a lot of diversity within it. But anyone in the leadership of the National Wildlife Federation, anybody involved with the organization knows that it is possible to speak across the lines of difference in your organization about certain basic principles that pretty well everybody will say, yeah, I, I believe in that. I haven't met a human being in Africa, in South America, in Russia, in Europe. I haven't met a, a, a human being of any stature, color, race, creed, political uh, affiliation who doesn't want a healthy world, who doesn't want peace, who doesn't want to live a life of freedom. Um, and so much of that becomes articulated best when we are in nature. You know, it took me a long time to figure out, because I spent an inordinate amount of time alone in nature, and it took me a long time to figure out how to articulate what the peace in nature really meant. And it finally came to me in a very distant place, looking at my tent across a very open, wide Arctic landscape. And I sat down as the evening sun hit that yellow tent. It was a Eureka yellow tent. And it stood out on that landscape like a lemon. And I suddenly realized when I sat down and looked at it, that in those moments, I didn't care if I lived or died. It wasn't that I was so exuberant that I wanted to all scream to the heavens. It was that I was in a space, a mental and emotional space, where nothing could intrude. 
And if somebody said to me, you only have two minutes to live, Shane, I wouldn't have done one damn thing different. I wouldn't have scrambled to my feet to try to escape. I wouldn't have done it. I just would have stayed there in that evening sun on that landscape and said, fine. We, I firmly believe this, and many philosophers over time have articulated this view. If you can be kind to wildlife and kind to animals, of course, that doesn't mean we can't use them. Human beings have to use the natural world like all animals. But if you can be kind to them, you can be kind to people. And if you can be kind to people, you can be kind to them. I find it hard to believe that in the same one animal, the same one human, you can have somebody who can be unkind, mean-spirited, abusive to animals, and not to some extent be that same way when it comes to members of our own species. So I think it's a very important truth that while we talk about the wild others a great deal, because that's what we're passionate about, I think it's really important that we recognize that we too are others in this journey with them. And that for 99.9% of our existence, we essentially were exactly like them. Absolutely no different. And that's why today, despite our clothing and our houses and our computers and our jet aircraft and our new space things going up into the abyss, I don't really think we're any different whatsoever from any of them. And I think if we could just understand that, that we are all, we will all lose in this regard. If we do not protect the natural world and we do not come to a basic understanding of the naturalness of our own lives, then I think every effort that we make individually, as organizations, as conservation visions, or as a national wildlife federation, or as, as a government, it doesn't make any difference. I, I, I don't think we can hope for success. All beautiful things emerge out of our relationships ultimately with the smallest things in nature. And uh, um, I think what we all dream about is a world where more people cared about that. More people cared about the natural world and more people did what they could for it. Even if they don't agree with certain ideas, even if they disagree about what causes climate change. Uh, I've never met anybody in the hunting world that didn't want free wild animals out there on the landscapes that could support them. So, I think perhaps we can find more common ground than we think around this issue. And uh, I think it was great to be able to cover the, cover the topic in this kind of, you know, high level overview way, rather than, you know, emphasizing as often happens in these discussions, the scientific metrics of, you know, exactly what's happening in a particular system, how many species are being impacted, all of which is important. But I think these broader issues are what can bring people to the discussion, to the table. Sage words. Very sage words. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Shane. This has been a terrific discussion. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, the smallest creatures, and that just reminded me. I just had to share with you that this weekend I went fishing for bluegills uh, in, a, in a little public land uh, lake uh, near me here and caught quite a few on my, on my fly line, and I just – even the little ones, their, their colors pop so much. I couldn't help but just appreciate them for what they were. Um, but I kept a few of them. And my son this weekend had his first wild harvest because uh, I cooked some up for uh, bluegill tacos and, and he had a little <laughs> bit himself. So he had his first wild harvest. And uh, um, I, I felt like I just had to share that with you um, given this discussion and, and where all this is going. So thank you for joining us, Shane. Uh, any, any final words for our listeners? No, I just, uh, as I always would wish at the end of all of these enterprises, the people who, who develop these podcasts and obviously an organization like the National Wildlife Federation, 
exists in order to advance the cause of wildlife. And advancing the cause of wildlife advances the cause of natural systems and advances the cause of humanity. So I always encourage people, if they're not involved with organizations like this one, and there's many to choose from, depending on what your particular interest is, that people really should get involved because there is, my entire life since a tiny boy has been focused on all of this. And there is not one thing I would change. There is nothing more rewarding than being able to say at the end of the day that you try to do something for nature. When is there ever a problem with being able to say that? Never. No. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. And, and we'll provide uh, links in the show notes to uh, Conservation Visions uh, so you can uh, do something for nature by checking them out. Um, National Wildlife Federation will provide a link to our uh, Natural Climate Solutions report that Aaron referenced earlier as well, so everybody can find that. Uh, thank you both for, for joining. Shane, it's always a pleasure talking with you. I always feel a little bit smarter than I was before. Um, Aaron, thanks for, for joining again as, as my new co-host, and this has been the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. We are NWF Outdoors. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.